Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. known fact about my guest today. She's the author of one of my favorite books, Nobody Will Tell You This But Me. And she's also the executive producer and head writer of Yearly Departed on Amazon Prime. She's a divine human being, one of the funniest people I know. So funny that she is an Emmy-nominated comedy writer. Welcome, Bess Kalb, to the podcast. A-okay. My guest today is the Emmy-nominated comedy writer and the best-selling author of Nobody Will Tell You This But Me, Bess Kalb. She wrote for eight years on Jimmy Kimmel Live. She also writes for The New Yorker's Daily Shouts. She received a WGA Award in 2016. She has written for the Emmy Awards, the Oscars, and the 2020 DNC. She's the head writer and executive producer of Yearly Departed on Amazon Prime. Welcome, Bess, to the Little Known Facts podcast. Hello. Hi, Alana. It's so great to be here. It is so so thrilled. Great to have you on the show. Um, I am still so full of your book. Um, there's a there's um so much I want to talk to you about because you also you know got so many of us through the pandemic um, with joyous moments from Yearly Departed, which is this incredible spin on the sort of you know roast. Um, comedy roast that we love so much, um, but doing it for 2020 and 2021 is such an extraordinary idea. So you choose what you do so many things. Do you want to talk about the book first? Do you want to talk about Yearly Departed? Your choice. Sure. I mean, I guess Yearly Departed is is what's very much at the front of my mind right now. It's It's just out and it's the second one. Um, it's the second one. Um, it's the um, the most fun I've ever had making television. Um, I I did it um, with a team of women and a team of producers who are are like the dream collaborators. Um, my uh, co EPs Paige Simpson and Rachel Brosnahan. Um, sort of shepherded this project from the very beginning since early incarnations of it um, in 2020 and ended up just being the best people to work with all over again. And we, through this crazy year, were able to pull together an incredible cast. I was able to work with all of my writers from last year. I had the the same writer's room come back. Um, Every single person wanted to come back and do it again. Um, and so it was this way of just working with people I admire and respect and trust creatively 
um, and uh, was able to just sort of like process the year with these funny, brilliant women. Um, and so to see to see it now, like this week, um, get so much love on Twitter and to like my my husband put it. He did the thing that which you're never supposed to do, which is like search for something on, on Twitter, just like randomly search for it and see the latest things. And it's all people like quoting it and loving it and saying nice things about it, which I'm not used to. Um, and I, to see the reception and to see how how it's made people happy as viewers, uh, which really just mirrors the experience that we all had making it, is just like so satisfying and feels like a, a nice thing in an otherwise very bleak time. <laughs> so I'm very grateful yeah, for it. Yeah, this planet has has been really <laughs> under great duress. Um, yes. So let me ask you, because when you, re- you mentioned Rachel Brosnahan, and I mean, I'm going to see just off the top of my head, it was like, Tiffany Haddish and Sarah Silverman and Phoebe Robinson and, and Megan Stalter and Patty Harrison. And then this year, Jane Fonda, my favorite yes. stand-up comedian. <laughs> um, so when you think about sort of the the spitballing between friends about the idea of doing this and then me seeing it on Amazon Prime this week, sort of how did it go from brainchild to we're watching it and it's the greatest, you know, stand-up comedians of our generation all all making us laugh with their incredible sort of takes on what we've been going through. And as writers, are you writing the material with them? Are they pitching you, okay, I want it to be like, I'm breaking up with my boyfriend or like, what? how does yeah. it work? So I have to say our team at Amazon are normally in like, talk to any writer and it's like, oh, the execs, the, the notes, the thing. Our right. team at Amazon are just, they just so get it. They, they have been on board with this project from the pitch. They just sort of were like nodding and like, okay, well, so like. So what was the pitch? The, like literally, what was the pitch? So the pitch was done in this office that I'm talking to you and now I was wearing sweatpants. I, I was reading off of a Google Doc, which is something that you're able to do in a Zoom pitch that you yes. can in person. Yes, that's um, Like right. I had the thing in front of me. I was so nervous. I Also, everybody was muted. So as I was reading like jokes and bits of of monologues for the 2020 um yearly departed we had tv cops and casual sex um in the pitch um and and i was i was reading jokes about these and t- it was just dead silence and i didn't realize it was because they had muted their on zoom they had they had muted themselves so i was like oh my god this yes, is because that's the worst nightmare comedy <laughs> which which actually made me work a little like with no audience right totally but it turns out they did they did love it they were there they were like you couldn't hear us but we were laughing the whole time um the team of alex taylor and puneet matu and ryan andalina at at, at amazon um is just like this brain trust of people who make some of the best comedy you know i i like bow down to shows like Fleabag and Catastrophe and Amazon Studios has just been at the forefront of transparent, some really wonderful, just there's a great sensibility and a great um, sort of like innate instinct amongst the execs there. And so when they heard the pitch and they they heard the potential for like, okay, it could be this all female, very bizarre sort of conceptual eulogy based funeral for a year, they were like, Yes, and let's let's get it tonally to where it needs to be, and let's make sure that it's like it's feeling tight and feeling that all of their instincts were really great, and it was sort of brought to being by this this team of incredibly creative executives. Um, but I'll also say that this really started as a 
live free for charity event that friends of mine who are also executive producers on the show and I did in LA for years before it even came to Amazon. Um, we were doing a, uh, we were doing, we did a roast for 2017, I believe. And then again for 2019 when my son was like five months old. Um, so it was a blur, but we had our friends who are standups and, um, Patty Harrison actually did one, um, for the free show. Um, and Chloe Feynman was in the live show, Sabrina Jalise, Emily Heller. Um, we worked with Io Debery. We worked with just like friends of ours to, to do this sort of roast for a year. And um, a agent saw it. Um, and a, a brilliant agent, Audrey Gordon Rowe at CAA, saw it and was like, listen, you need to pitch this to Amazon. And so my co-EP, Samantha Ressler, Natalie Love, and I um, – we're like, okay, we'll, we'll do it. And it was something that I was writing on the side, um, this, this live version of it. I was like, I had my full-time job at Kimmel, but like the thing that I loved to write the most was this. And it was the first time I was able to write something completely on, like as the head writer and former writer's room with my friends. Um, and so it was a great experience. And now it, it, it's surreal to see like, there's a billboard in Times Square with this idea um, that I pitched to friends, friends of mine from college who wanted to put on a charity show to raise money for Planned Parenthood. So uh, Rachel, the Rachel Brosnahan of it, we, yeah. how does that, how does that so happen? Audrey put us in touch with Rachel. This is sort of like in the nitty gritty of it. Rachel was the one who turned it from this sort of variety show that we were doing in a live space that was like over dinner, you know, in, in, in somewhat in, in chaos Rachel was the one who was like, okay, here's how we, we put this on television. And it was her instincts as somebody who's a performer, but also a brilliant producer. Um, Rachel is somebody who is, is sort of like a no detail too small um, producer. She could very well just like stamp her name on it and that would be fine. She has an overall deal at Amazon. That gets us in the door. That's great. Instead, she was like hand sketching the programs. <laughs> Um, she like, she, um, and, and like had her, had her husband like photoshopping things to show how it should look every meeting, every, every set decoration decision, every lighting decision in terms of like talking to the DP about feel, um, of course the script, Rachel was intimately involved in every aspect of this project from the beginning, including the overall conceptualization. And she was obviously a performer in the first year's um, rendition. This year, she, she, God bless her, had like the world's smallest cameo, which still required like a full day of like wardrobe and makeup and hair and just for like the funny line. But that I think speaks to her, the amount she gives to this and the amount she cares about this, which is like all in no matter how small, because every, every moment of this and every small detail is what, what can make it something really special. So, so some people listening will have seen Yearly Departed and know everything we're talking about. And someone may be listening and have no idea until they now go and watch it because they're excited to hear about it from our talking about it. So, so Yearly Departed is... Great question. So for, for those of you who haven't seen I should, it. This my first question. I'm no, doing no, no, no. I know. It's, I'm, I'm talking about it as a, I mean, Yearly Departed is a 
satirical funeral for the year where the world's funniest women laid to rest all that we're grateful to say goodbye to. Um, and some, some things that we sort of like lament to see, uh, to see go. So this year, um, in 2021, we said goodbye to hot vac summer, that like magical period where you could just sort of get out there and the case positivity rate was so low that you could just sort of like live it up. Um, we said goodbye to, um, we said goodbye, (laughs) we said goodbye. This is, this is sort of a sad one we said goodbye to reproductive rights and the way that we did this eulogy was saying goodbye to my body, my choice bumper stickers. Um, Jane Fonda did the eulogy for ignoring the climate crisis after these sort of dystopian apocalyptic climate events of this year. Um, We said goodbye to being an asshole after sort of receipts came out and notorious jerks, um, both famous and not were called out either by like iPhone camera viral Karen videos or like losing their positions of power in, in various industries. Um, we said goodbye to a lot. And so it's a show that reflects, I think a collective experience of the year. And instead of just sort of like reciting it or, or recapping it, we roast it. And I think what's resonating with people is that it, it just becomes really cathartic. And so when we're dealing with, intense topics and sometimes political topics. We do it with the super um, sardonic touch um, with gallows humor and um, and with like a lightness that only a comedy roast format can provide. And so and did you and yeah. and fellow writers um, or sister writers, I should say, yeah. <laughs> um, because it is such a lady based project from yes. top to bottom. Um, oh, yeah. uh, are you sketching out each idea, assigning it to a specific comedian and shaping it together? Or or then, so what was the process between matching yeah. Sarah Silverman and what she did and, and Megan and what she did? Sort of how does that work? And, and Rachel, of course. Oh, yeah. So I, it, a surprising amount of it is pre-written. So I okay. pitched it with those topics. Okay. Um, like I pitched Pants for Rachel Brosnahan. And making America great again for Sarah Silverman, um, and so coming in with um, the idea and the voice is very important because you end up synthesizing them together as a writer's room. And I should say, my writer's room is the soul of this show: um, Akila Green, Francesca Ramsey, Jocelyn Richard, and Karen Chi are like the brain trust. I I, I don't want to like send a tweet without running it by all of them. They're right. brilliant, right? Um, and while I had the sort of like banner headline and topic, um, the room is what really fleshed fleshed out those those concepts and added incredible jokes and jokes in the voice of the the actor who ended up or comedian who ended up doing the eulogy. Um, and the luck, the like hit rate that we've had of like getting the person that we wanted to do the eulogy to do the eulogy is really amazing. And I think it speaks to this this sort of, eagerness for female comedians to do something just for them where they're not like the token girl in the lineup this is something that like really celebrates them um as a like a dominant force in comedy and absolutely um, yeah i mean pitching the climate crisis eulogy to jane fonda was the most nervous i think i've ever been aside from when the epidural 
didn't take at first. Um, <laughs> in your real yeah. life. In your real life, baby. Yes. The epidural. <laughs> that, the anesthesiologist was like, oh, you know what? Wait a minute. I was nervous. What, then. Like there was nothing in the needle? Like what? What? No, it just didn't go in right. But you know what? I'm back okay. on baby again. So I just have to like pretend that didn't happen. Exactly. And, you know and that what? Is like, not absolutely. No offense to Cedar Sinai and their incredible team. I'm sure it was my problem. <laughs> but, um, it was your fault. It was my it, fault. We've been raised to fault. believe. Yes, it's <laughs> exactly. your fault. You don't know how to take an epidural. Honestly, Alana, I, I did say I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh of course you did. I read your book. And <laughs> researching you, I ended up doing a deep dive into the making of Yearly Departed and watch this incredible interview with the editors. So to find out that no one was in the room at the same time, these stand-ups are literally in a room, not only like not seeing fit, like other than the gaffer and the boom, right? Like there's, totally. there's a boom operator and no one else in the room with them. And so the idea that every single, um, Entrance into the room, every comedian's reaction shot, everything is done separately. Like everyone yeah. was alone at the time and basically green screen is bananas and yeah. it is so good. And all hail your editing team and your special effects team um, because what like a masterful reality shift. Totally. It's a, that's a beautiful way to describe it. And that's what it, that's what it was. There's also, I believe there's like no role in comedy more important than the editor. Um, like you can have the best writing, you can have the best performances. If, if your timing isn't tight and if it's not conveyed in a way that like cuts together well, everything falls flat. It's, uh, he, is Jimmy Kimmel, are you still also, is that still also part of your daily life? No, so I haven't written for I I quit writing for um Jimmy the t- the two two days one show before lockdown in okay. 2020. Um so I if it if it hadn't been for like I, it, it is so wild to think that like I I gave my notice in the second week of March 2020 and then my goodbye party was over Zoom the first two weeks later, the, f- the first week of April. Um, and at the time we were like, because he was supposed to host the Emmys and he ended up hosting the Emmys the next September. And um, there was this joke at the goodbye party, which is like, oh, well, the pandemic will be over by by then. So we'll <laughs> be back in person. Um, so you were ready to move on. I, I was. I sold the film to Nobody Will Tell You This But Me the day before I, I, I quit. Um, that is, was that, is, that, uh, is that happening? Yes. I speak? just sent in scenes. I just sent in a bunch of scenes last night. Oh, my God. You have so yeah. much to do before this next baby is born. Oh, my Thank God. Thank you for I taking know. this time with me today. No, no. Um, I, well, you know... <laughs> I was thinking about that. I was thinking about like work politics because the head writer on Jimmy Kimmel is married to Jimmy Kimmel and Mm -hmm. sort of, I just thought, oh, that must be so interesting to be a a part of a a team where there's, you know, marital politics and work politics. And I don't know. I just think that's always an interesting thing. And I wondered if you can speak to that at all. I always love working with my husband, but it's been in short like one play or a couple of days on a TV show as opposed to day in and day out. 
Yeah, I mean, it was great. The sh- that show is there's a lot of there's a lot of talk of like, oh, the show is a family. Uh, the movie was a family. We're get- the show is literally Jimmy literally just hires his family. The show is like the Booker, his cousin Mickey, like his it. brother John, a brilliant director in his own right, who like did South Park before Jimmy even had a show. And like has a Peabody Award. Molly, his wife, is the head writer. And when we do blind submissions or we were doing like writing as a group and it was just a writer's assistant writing jokes from the room at random, hers would get picked. Like she just gets she gets the voice of the show and she gets him, obviously. (laughs) But I I don't know how they do it. It's amazing. It's a well-oiled machine that also, you you know, who, who knows? You know, I can't speak at all to marital politics there, but as an employee and as somebody who um, looks up to Molly and Jimmy and um, had was so lucky to have been hired at 25 years old by them both um, and to have Molly as a role model for what it's like to be a mother who's running a comedy room, um, I I am so lucky for for her mentorship i sent her the early cut of yearly departed in 2020 because it was like molly what do you think of this um she's just somebody who's really sharp and brilliant and savvy and and kind um and i think everybody who's worked with her would say the same thing um and she's she's very loyal um and and um and is a great mom and has dealt very publicly with um, a medically fragile kid in a way that's really inspiring to me. They, they both have. So as, as like parents and as a team and as a model of a relationship, I look up to them. I could not, I could not run a show with my husband. <laughs> I definitely could not. Him editing like my New York times op-ed was like, we were like, we have to go away to Joshua tree for a night. Just like... <laughs> This is such an interesting thing for me, because obviously, when you're working on Jimmy Kimmel, you know, that is such a short form experience, right? Mm. For the most part. And then the idea that you are now, I I just want to go back to because so much of your um, unique voice as a writer is so evident in this incredible memoir ghostwriter, novel, whatever you want to call it in terms of your grandmother's story that you have figured out a way in to sort of create a new form of, of novel in your book. Mm-hmm. Nobody will tell you this but me by Best Cow. And mm-hmm. I feel like um, your family story is so beautiful and, and sort of the way in which there are all these generations of women before you and sort of when you think of like your great grandmother's story of coming here and sort of where you are now and what you've been able to do. I think you went to Brown. So obviously education and was really important in your family also that you didn't just quit high school and, and try to get hired on SNL, right? Like there's a lot of book smart and learning and, and time spent, but who were the kind of you speak of Molly as like a comedy writer's room mentor. Mm-hmm. Where did you find your comedic voice? Where did this begin for you and and the confidence to do it out loud for other people yeah. outside of your living room? 
I mean, I'm I'm not a stand up, so I don't have the confidence to do it. Out loud. No, but I, I need I to pitch your ideas. I, I, I admire yeah. perform performers are are a, something that like I, I I couldn't I could never do what performers do. I can never do what you do. I can never do what stand ups do. But I I'm I'm a cowardly writer. So but you never the, did uh, that. That was never part of your early days, like stand up Mike Nights. It was a part of my very early days. Okay. Um, where you learned I, that this is not for you. I think it was something that I took really seriously. So I, I, I actually, as a very young child, was like a serious. I did like Lee Strasberg in, in New York, and I went to, I, <laughs> it was, I, um, I was like a serious, very serious child, <laughs> and um, and acting was something that I could do to like pretend to be the child in Grapes of Wrath, or to like be Anne Frank, or to you know like, and this was, <laughs> this is what I, I was like, yes, or like, or to do Commedia dell'arte, and like that was the, um, and my parents were like, all right, look, you know, she's busy on a Saturday, and we like that on 14th Street, but um, uh, I, I just, it ended up being something that, and I did, I did like plays in high school, um, by, I went to this sort of hippie high school in New York city, um, with like no AP courses and, and, um, we did a, we did a feminist, um, retelling of Antigone. And that was like my whole senior year. We did, we also did like the vagina monologues, like all of these like virgins standing up there. doing It, um, it was very embarrassing. And, um, it's like that, that was a part of my, my youth, but then, <coughs> for for comedy, I mean, I I'll admit this. In, when I lived in San Francisco after I graduated college, I I did stand up. I did it at a laundromat venue called Brainwash in the Soma district. So there were people literally trying to do their laundry, like just get through the hour while like some asshole was up there doing like a tight five on like what's uber <laughs> and it was horrifying all my friends came and they were like you are great um and and it was just my friend saying that uh, but um i i think for me that's not where I felt most like myself. I get I get really nervous performing, and like every time I've done stand up, I did like a couple of friends shows in LA. Every time I've done stand up, I would get the flu after because it was like my whole immune system would just crash, and I I, I I'm just too. I I don't want it to be about my performance. I I want it to be about the jokes themselves. But you mentioned you know I didn't drop out of high school. I did leave college for a semester to intern at the Colbert Report, um, and that's where. Um, that's where all of this gelled for me. Um, I, I, I ended up going back to college, um, but probably more for a boyfriend than for, <laughs> than for book one, for like the, the, the intellectual yeah. pursuit. Yeah. <laughs> so how does that happen? So you, you find out there's this opportunity. Yeah. So how it happened, I watched the, White House press correspondent speech that Stephen Colbert did for George W. Bush, who was president at the time. And he was four feet away from the leader of the free world, and he eviscerated him in a way that no journalist could. Um, he said, the, I mean, this joke is like, is actually sort of emblazoned. This is my like villain origin story. This joke, Stephen Colbert stood there and he said, I admire this man. 
this man believes the same thing on Wednesday as he did on Monday, no matter what happened Tuesday. And it was just one of those moments of truth to power and sort of like King Lear's court jester of uh, just, it, it, it was fascinating to see. It was amazing to watch Bush's face fall, knowing he was being insulted. Um, and, um, you know, he doesn't just stand for things. He stands on things like the rubble of the World Trade Center. It was like, it was, this speech was just like banger after banger. It was incredibly tight and, and well-constructed and these, these brilliant trenchant news peg jokes. And I was like, okay, all of this idea that I have if I want to be a journalist or a politi- political speech writer or like change the world, with, like, no, if you change the world through comedy. <laughs> Um, and so I applied for an internship there with this like long essay that was like what I said. I was like, you know, I believe in the like democracy is, is held accountable. And they were like, all right, do you want to get coffee for comedians? And, and like, that's what you did. I did. Yeah. But you left school for it. I did. Um, what year were you in at that point? It was my junior year. So I ended up graduating late because I like, I had to do this. I had to work for Stephen Colbert. And so then you're in the inner sanctum of this thing that you, Mm -hmm. you know, like I'm a girl watching TV and now I'm here in the thing. I'm in the rocket ship. Um, absolutely crazy. And that was, and so are you between getting coffee, are you able to kind of see what a writer's room is and how they, pitch to Stephen and sort of how the show is made or, or do you have access? So something very fortuitous happened. It was crazy that this happened while I was in the internship. So it was 2007, the writer's strike happened. Oh, right. So all of a sudden, like halfway through my internship, they looked at the interns and they said, you're non-union. Stephen is doing the show every night. We are not going to cross the picket line with our writers. If anybody here has any jokes, you can pitch them. And it was like, this would never happen, never in a million. Like if, if a writer pitched, if an intern pitched a joke to a, in a formal way or in any, in any way, if an intern even suggested that they had a comedy idea in any show, they would immediately either be like boxed out or fired. Um, but this was them being like, hey, kid, you know, what do you got? And so I pitched jokes. So you had them. You had started to think like that. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking like and that. vagina monologues and Antigone. There yeah, was yeah. also but, a brain that could like do that. Well, on the side, I was always doing comedy, okay, comedy-ish things. And at Brown, I I wrote comedy little like funny articles for their for the Alt Weekly that my friends and I edited. It was like the Brown RISD Weekly called the College Hill Independent, and it's great. Um, and, um, it should be funded by Brown (laughs) and keep its funding. But, um, and so I wrote, are you listening? Exactly. There's all, they're they're always losing funding. We like uh, never have any money. Um, but but at the indie, but it was great. And it's where I wrote comedy. Um, my so now this isn't husband. coming out of nowhere. There, there's, there's, there's some always, Malcolm always. Gladwell hours behind it before they oh, say, yeah. "Hey well, kid, what do look, you got?" I was a, yeah, I was a girl though, and growing up, I was conditioned to believe that comedy was for the boys. Mm-hmm. I mean, I saw who got up and won their Emmys for The Daily Show and The Colbert Report. It was all white men with glasses. Like right. those pictures are 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 actually haunting to see now. If you look at John Stewart's writers' room. 
at the Emmys, it's all men. Right. It's like um, clones. Yeah, it is. It's like I didn't mean to fun. interrupt you. You said you're you're about to tell me anything about your husband. Oh, he read one of my comedy articles um, that I wrote for the Indie and like and like wanted to talk to me because he thought it was funny. It was like it was, so, it was called like the Real Houseflies of it, it was very dumb. It was like a dumb parody thing, but he was like, "This is really funny," and I was like, "Well, I guess we should get married and have two kids." So that's where you <laughs> met at school. We met at school. Yeah. Um. Can I? Okay. So so do Colbert have this moment where, you know, it's such a like movie moment in the rom-com, like you pitch the idea, it's on the show that night. Um, So that happened. And suddenly your, your stuff is incorporated into Colbert. I mean, like a little bit. It was one, yeah, it was one thing singular, (laughs) like half that he made better, but it was still, it was still so um, surreal and, um, it, it was like a make a wish, you know, <laughs> to, to be able to, it was, it, it made no sense that this was happening, um, to just be able to do it. Like the mere act of pitching jokes was like full, every neuron in my brain was just like a fireworks display. It was, it was the feeling of, I am doing exactly what I want to be doing forever. Wow. Yeah. And I was devastated when I graduated and I, um, or I was going to graduate and I got this email from Colbert that was like, from, from one of the producers there that was like, we know you're graduating. I just want you to know, we just laid off like, so like a, a bunch of people, if you want to come as like a something PA, like and come, we would love to have you at the show, but like we can't pay. Well. And I couldn't afford to like to do that and live in New York and it just wouldn't be a real job. And so, um, I, I couldn't do it, but I always had in the back of my head, like one day I'd like to, one day I just want to be doing that. And then fast forward to 2013, um, and Stephen Colbert and I were nominated for Emmys together in the same category when I, the writing staff of Jimmy Kimmel was nominated. (laughs) How many years later, how many years after you graduated? That was... Five years, four or five years after. That's yeah, this is insane. A very fast trip. When I said rocket ship before, like that's a rocket ship of a that's career. A rocket ship. Yeah, Six years, maybe so. Yeah, it was yeah. not a long time. I was a child. I mean, I wore a short black like dress from a consignment store that I like. I was a child at the Emmys. Right. <laughs> well, I want to jump over to this child at the Emmys who was a child who grew up with a grandmother who is like a really bigger than life character. And I, when you mentioned it was being made into a film, I was like, huh, who is going to play your grandmother? Because she's like, what an incredible character for an actress of a certain age. Um, Oh yeah. And who will play you. And, and I know you probably, maybe you can say, but is it up to that or is it still, are you still writing it without any idea of that? I mean, I think it would be really hard to write with, somebody in mind because I really am trying to keep the voice so specific to her Mm -hmm. and I'm I'm so impressionable I mean like my my training as a writer is write for the voice of the show so it's like I can write for Jimmy I can write for the comedians in Yearly Departed and I can write for my grandma who's like my ultimate muse (laughs) the funniest woman um and so I am writing in the voice of her but as soon as I picture somebody I'm writing for them and it's like it's influenced by roles I've seen them in um but I think what's so exciting to me about like about picturing it as a movie should it hopefully if it ever you know 
really comes to, I mean, it's being, it's, it is on paper happening. Sure, sure. Um, it got made. Yeah. And the, um, which, which it is by, by sight unseen pictures and they're an incredible team. Um, and I, I'm so lucky to be working with them, but, um, if, yeah, if it ever, if it's like filmed and, and, and cast and all that, exactly. Um, I, I, I can see so many women doing it and that's the, like, the joy of it is that like the, I am a huge fan of female character actors <laughs> and, um, I see it, just picturing the, like, whether it's from like Broadway who do TV or like there, there's so many women of a certain age, um, and women of my grandma's age who could just nail this. Um, and ultimately like, that'll be a hard <laughs> decision that I don't even know if I get to make a hard decision for someone to make. Well, I found your book, uh, you know, it, it's so crazy how much I cried during your oh. book. I read it in a day. It was really one of those books that it was like my family. I don't know where they thought I was. Like I, right. I literally was hiding out with this book and I probably went to bed at three in the morning. It was, um, you know, as a, as a, Jewish girl of a certain age growing up in, you know, the tri-state area with, with a history that's shared with you and family members who are, who are reminiscent of, of the people in your story. Um, But your relationship, both with your mother and, and your dad, who you mentioned before we started recording is is your nanny right now my nanny is very affordable incredible thing I love that so much and I love knowing that like a little you know postscript to the story and now my dad is helping me and my mom my dad is here now the two of them they 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 trade on and off my my dad is the one who just put my son down for his nap (laughs) incredible and and yeah I mean you're a really tight family and it's a really incredible thing um but if you can talk a little bit about your grandmother, who is the the star of this particular story, and you in mm-hmm. in this incredible romance, um, what comes to mind when you're when you're sort of thinking about it now at this moment? You know, I I've gone now through two pregnancies without her, and that's something that I mean, you talk about a postscript and the, the sort of like ultimate coda to this is, is like her seeing my child. And that's really all I wanted, um, which is such a selfish, you know, thing to say. Um, but I, I really did want her to, to, to see that. And she was, you know, she was so excited for the idea that I would have a baby someday. And, um, so to now have, to be on like the precipice of another baby without her is really hard. And I, I think about her a lot. And if you've read my, my book and, and you're listening, then you know how much I, I, I think about her um, after she's gone. The whole last part of the book is an imagined relationship with her after she's gone. Um, and that has continued. That book keeps writing itself in, in my life. Um, but there was something that I, I, I sort of like foretold in the book about how my mom would turn into this obsessive doting grandmother. And it's I, I couldn't have even I didn't even scratch the surface in the book. My mom and dad moved to Los Angeles without telling my husband. And we were the last people to know <laughs> they they got an Airbnb when my kid was born in August of 2019 
And then it they realized it was like fi- it financially made more sense just to get like a lease on a small place instead of and they we found out about that. And financially, by the way, makes the most sense for them to go back to their home. <laughs> That's sure. what makes yeah. the most sense yeah. in New York. But love, but, um, love is nonsensical. Yeah. Right. And so they invite, we found out that they moved here when they invited us to Thanksgiving at their house. That's hilarious. That's we were hilarious. like, oh, a house that they furnished. <laughs> like, well, if you read the book, what's so incredible is your grandmother. Um, and grandfather lived a very glamorous life, and yes, a lot of the story that that is focused on your mom and her mother is of a daughter who doesn't have the kind of relationship with her mother yeah. that we think of as kind of warm and cozy, right? They yeah. grew to really appreciate each other in adulthood, but it was a very um, complicated childhood for your mom. Yes, and so I think a lot about how your mom was sort of disconnected from her mother in her youth in certain ways, both geographically, because your grandmother and grandfather traveled the world and your mom, you know, had a nanny at home. Um, And then what it must have been like for her to then see her mother dote so much on her daughter, right? Like how complicated all of that is and how sometimes even if we, you know, there's two things that happen. We either want to raise our children exactly like our mothers did for us or in you know, complete rebellion of how we were raised. And now to know like this, this story continuing of now your parents taking such great ownership and love of their role as grandparents and wanting to help because they can at this stage of their lives. Um, I was wondering if your grandfather is still alive. No, he passed away um, in, in May. Okay, and because the he, end of his story is such a big part of the book and Martha's yeah. Vineyard and and that whole segment. Yeah. So he's no longer with us either. He is no longer with us. He lived to see the book. He lived to see the the book sort of take off and to, to see reactions to the book. And um, he lived to be very proud of, of the book, which is really special. Um, you know, he he would call and thank me about it um, when he was thinking about it. And he called bookstores the week that it opened and the week that it um, it, came, it out. came out. And um, and he called bookstores all around the country asking if they had it. Like he oh was just God. so proud um, that the love of his life got to live on. There's also so much in your book about places like from the vineyard to Westchester, to the city. Like, I feel like there's a there's a, a way in which it's also like a travel guide to these places. Um, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, you know, I mean, I happen to go and spend time in these same places, so it really kind of worked. You know, I'm, I'm more up island, but it's still the same mm-hmm. world and the same people and, you know, just socially conscious. Um, Jewish people of a certain, you know, <laughs> stratosphere. Yeah. yeah, it's it's great that they finally have a moment in the media with my yeah. book. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> um, and that is how much I love your book. I'm literally crying that he's gone. Like, I feel like oh. I'm just finding out. It's just mm, such an incredible... Yeah, I mean, here's what's on my desk. It's, it's, it's funny that you mm. met. So on my desk is this framed uh, postcard 
which is a picture of them traveling. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the two of them in Prague. And on the, I have this clear frame because on the back is the letter that, that she sent to my mom. It's a letter from my, my grandma to the kids and Maggie, who I assume was the nanny. Um, my mom has no memory of Maggie, this woman who she was put with for three months or whatever. It could be her nanny. It could be a pet. We don't know. Yeah. We have no idea. We have no idea. Kids and Maggie, we are fine. Athens was warm and we are now on our way to Belgrave, Yugoslavia, then on to Davos. Borrow the slide projector from the Damascans. Don't forget about the special instructions for developing the film. Love mom and dad. That's it. That's the correspondence <laughs> that she got from them. So yeah, not a <coughs> um it's it's wild, but I, I love it. It's a it's a picture of the two of them in their element. They both look so proud and happy to be there. It is a real rags to riches story what they went through. They quite literally they lived in a attic of of her family's tenement essentially in, in Greenpoint with you know, chasing rats with brooms and blocking up windows to keep the cold out with newspaper. And 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 here they are saying words like Davos, which are so fancy. <laughs> right. And, and and all of the development he did and, and housing that he created. I mean, it's, oh, yeah. it's really, I mean, Levittown, like it's totally it's unbelievable totally. that he's a part of that history. He is. And I mean, that's why they were going to Yugoslavia and Belgrade. They, they went and toured post-Soviet, um, nations to get building technology um, for prefab buildings. Um, and so he would, you know, he would take her, he had to go to Europe for this. And so he go, okay, we'll stop in Paris or Athens or whatever. We'll go to a big destination. And then I'm going to take you to this sort of this, this uh, bomb shelter in, in, in Leningrad. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they, they, he, 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 my, my grandfather, my, my uncle eulogized as 003 and a half. Um, because there's like this myth around him of why was he one of the only Americans who was able to travel to the Soviet Union during the Cold War? We and don't there know. Are these, there are these crazy stories and these spies that he was friends with who who are still in touch with my mother and like check in on her. Um, spies whose like names I was not allowed to publish in the book or like I'm allowed to say um, for like fear of their families. What? Um, but yeah, he had this incredible life. Yeah. Um, and I, if I write another book, if I can like emotionally do that, um, it'll be hit, it'll be a longer version of his story. And I, I think I have a title for it, which I, I, I have as a word document on my computer, but it's I swear on your life. This is true. Exactly. Oh my God. I can't wait. I feel like you write for me. I'm so selfishly waiting for that. <laughs> That's one. How I, I cannot to tell you. I just, I read it like on my computer. They only sent me a PDF and I was like, ugh, I want to hold this book. And then all, oh, I'm scrolling, scrolling. And I'll then, send it to you. I'll, no. I'll send you a, I'll send you a, I'll send you a signed copy. I have nothing. I look, I've, I have a pandemic book, so I have nothing but boxes of books in my office that were supposed to be at, at in-person events. Well, I don't know. After this, a lot more people are going to buy them, and I've been telling everyone about it because it's glorious. You are glorious. I cannot thank you enough for coming. I can't believe you're about to have a baby. I hope oh your other baby is still <laughs> I know. It's bananas. Um, tell me a little known fact about you before I let you go back to your, your life. Yeah. A little known fact about me. 
Okay, this is it. A little known fact about me is that I don't drink coffee. Never. Never, ever. Never liked it? I I never... I mean, I have like... I'll have like a... I like decaf. I like the taste of it. But um, I'll have like a few sips and I, caffeine just makes me... Caffeine just makes my stomach hurt and it gives me a headache. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm allergic to it, but I, I feel like a fraud in almost all writer's rooms because everyone's like, what's your coffee order? And I'm like, decaf latte. Nothing. So what do you drink in the morning? Like, what do you have in the morning? I have tea or I, ha- I have like a I have like a decaf tea or decaf coffee with a little milk. Very civilized. Uh, well, whatever it is that you drink in the morning, it's working. You are the most prolific <laughs> person you are creating so much work you are putting so much good out into the world and I'm so lucky to have had this time with you today Beth so thank you for being on the show thank you Alana for a wonderful conversation I feel so lucky to have been here One more thing. So many of you have asked, how do you donate to the podcast? Well, it could not be easier. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. Instructions are clearly laid out. And I'm so grateful to you in advance for any donation you choose to make. But regardless, I have loved, loved, loved making the previous 200 and something episodes for you. I can't wait to make 200 more. I wish you a beautiful day. Stay healthy. Be safe. Until next time. Clouds can make the wind blow. Bugs can make the grass grow. So, there you go. These are little known facts that now you know. The episode was edited by Nicholas Clark. We recorded in New York City. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.